Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The more I look at what the Colorado Supreme Court did and the more research I do on my own, the more outrageous it is on a legal basis. And this is the God's honest truth. I would be saying the same thing if they did this to Joe Biden or Jill Stein or Cornell West or uh, George Bush. This is outrageous. So by now you probably know most of the facts. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled four to three that Donald Trump cannot appear on the 2024 presidential primary ballot because of his actions on January 6th. This is the first ruling of its kind in American history. And the court sided with a group of voters who argued that Trump's disqualified from being from elected office under Section three of the 14th Amendment. The clause, which was enacted in 1866 after the Civil War says that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. That's a quote. Who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies therein, thereof. The majority found that Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence and lawless action to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. Prior to this ruling, Trump prevailed in a number of cases where voters tried to do the same thing. Minnesota, Michigan, elsewhere. So the ruling drew immediate outrage from Trump's campaign, which called it completely flawed. All seven of the justices on the Colorado Supreme Court are Democratic appointees. The three who wrote in dissent argued that the state's election code is not the avenue for finding guilt or of insurrection, and they're exactly right. They noted that Trump's never been criminally charged for insurrection and warned this ruling could violate his due process rights. They're right. Those Democratic appointees, those judges are right. Justice Carlos Samor, or Samor, said or wrote in the dissenting opinion, Even if we are convinced that a candidate committed horrible acts in the past, dare I say, engaged in insurrection, there must be procedural due process before we can declare that individual disqualified from holding office. Separately, the U.S. Supreme Court is already considering whether Trump is immune from prosecution for his actions on January 6th in the election interference case brought by Jack Smith. So the right is uniformly disgusted by this decision, even people that don't like Trump. And they say that the Supreme Court should overturn it unanimously. 
President Trump's former attorney, Ty Cobb, who's got one of those great mustaches. He's now, I believe, a CNN contributor. He basically said that same thing. Um, so I think this case will be handled quickly. I think it could be 9-0 in the Supreme Court for Trump. Some on the right say the Colorado Supreme Court's legal reasoning is deeply flawed and ignores the intent of the 14th Amendment. Others suggest Democrats are becoming the threats to democracy that they claim to fear. And by the way, this one of the things that I mentioned the other day is, I think, in danger of happening. There are now some Republicans in some states that are trying to throw Biden off the ballot. So the left is split on the validity of the court's reasoning. Many worry about the precedent the ruling would set if it's upheld by the Supreme Court. Some praise the court for using conservative text-based legal theories to justify its decision. Others say the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment is wrong and call on the Supreme Court to overturn its ruling. Um, Lawrence Lessig, who is one of the most famous law professors in history, law professor, I believe, at Harvard, left-wing, very left-wing. I've interviewed him, brilliant man, but as left-wing as can be, not a Trump supporter at all. He wrote in Slate, which is a left-wing publication, the Supreme Court must unanimously strike down Trump's ballot removal. This is what he writes. What is not ambiguous is whether it would be absurd to exclude the president from the reach of Section 3, because it's plainly not absurd. Indeed, excluding the president and vice president from the scope of the clause makes perfect sense, because they mention senators, representatives, or presidential electors. They don't mention president. This is Lessig. There's an obvious reason why the only two nationally elected officers would be excluded from its reach. It took mere moments after the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling to see why, as Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick threatened to remove President Joe Biden from the Texas ballot as retribution. All this will be enough. This is, again, left-wing law professor Lawrence Lessig. All this will be enough for the Supreme Court to see why there is no argument from absurdity that justifies stretching the words of the 14th Amendment to cover this extreme case. Again, again, this is a guy that hates Trump. He writes, electing Trump would be the worst political decision of the nation since the Civil War. But excluding him wrongfully by a close vote of the Supreme Court could well trigger the next civil war. And he writes, we must defeat him politically, not through clever lawyer interpretations of ambiguous constitutional texts. I think he's exactly right. Judge Andrew Napolitano, who's a libertarian, he's usually on the the political right, but he goes all over the place. Sometimes he's very critical of Republicans, too. Here it was on uh, Katz and Cosby's radio show last night. I think there's no way that the Supreme Court of the United States fails to get involved in this. If they don't get involved, we could end up with 50 different Supreme Court opinions, one from each state, as to what the 14th Amendment means. And the whole purpose, from Marbury versus Madison on, of the supremacy of the Supreme Court is so that we understand what the Constitution means once and for all, with finality, from one voice. So whether they affirm this or reject it, and I think they're going to reject it, 
they do have to weigh in on it because they have to give guidance to the other 49 state Supreme Courts. I agree with Judge Napolitano and Ty Cobb and Lawrence Lessig. I think it's the wrong decision legally, and I think it's also incredibly dangerous politically. The court shouldn't get to determine, the court doesn't get to determine if Trump is guilty of insurrection. And after reading the arguments from Lawrence Lessig and others, Jonathan Turley, I actually do not believe, and this is new to me, but I do not believe Section 3 applies to the president or the vice president. Trump may very well end up a three or four times convicted felon. So we should let his criminal cases play out without removing him from the ballot. Let the jury do their job. Let the voters do theirs. And there was also a lot of interesting writing on this by Richard Winger of Ballot Access News. And because I brought up the issue of uh, the Young Turks guy that's running for president, even though he's not eligible, should he be able to be on the ballot? Cenk Uger. And he writes that the 20th Amendment, which was passed in 1933, seems to say that voters and electors may choose a president who doesn't meet the constitutional qualifications. If you read the text of the 20th Amendment, it seems to say that both voters and electors are permitted to vote for individuals who don't meet the qualifications. It says, quote, if a president shall not have been chosen before the time fixed for the beginning of this term, or if the president has failed to qualify, then the vice president-elect shall act as president until a president shall have qualified. So the clause, or if the president has failed to qualify, shows that the authors of this amendment imagined that the voters might get to choose someone who doesn't qualify, whether it's Cenk Uger or Donald Trump or someone else. And we've seen people on the ballot who haven't been qualified before. All right, we're going to talk Israel, Ukraine, and more with one of the most brilliant foreign policy minds in the world, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. the best time of the year I don't know if there'll be snow but have a cup of cheer 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, we're winding down 2023. It should be a festive time. It should be a joyous time. But unfortunately, there are a lot of different corners of the world that are experiencing strife and war, devastation, people losing their homes, and overall destruction. And a lot of us have been looking for answers. One of the people that I have looked to for years for answers when it comes to foreign policy is uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Now, I've been known for giving uh, flowery introductions of people, sometimes have been accused of hyperbole, uh, exaggerating someone's claims. When it comes to Jeffrey Sachs, the only thing I'm going to do is read a small portion of his resume just so that you understand the magnitude and the gravitas of his credentials. And you can see why people like me look to him for expertise when it comes to foreign policy. He is a university professor and the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia, where he directed the Earth Institute for about 14 years. He's also the president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and a commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development. He's been an advisor to three UN secretaries general and currently serves as an SDG advocate under the current secretary general. He's an author most recently of A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, I'm a big fan. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Frank, thank you so much. Very nice. Thanks a lot. Let me begin uh, by asking about Abu Dhabi. I know you were out there in advance of uh, COP28. You got you, you gave an address that a lot of religious leaders and world leaders are still talking about it. Uh, I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience there and what you think the key takeaways of COP28 were. Do you think this has been effective? Well, you know, uh, 2023 will be the, the hottest year in uh in history, uh, maybe the hottest year for tens of thousands of years on the planet. So we're in the midst of a very serious uh, climate crisis, <laughs> but all of our attention is uh, diverted by these terrible wars that you talked about. So before the meeting on climate, which was in Dubai, there was a meeting of religious leaders uh, from all different faiths, uh, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, uh, that came together in Abu Dhabi. And I had a chance to speak uh, with them and speak to them. And um, I didn't say anything very original. I said, if we don't uh, settle these wars, we're never going to even turn our attention to the climate crisis. And I believe these wars could end very quickly because they're driven by politics. So if we focused uh, not on hating each other and killing each other, but actually on the underlying politics, we could end the wars. And it's a point that I also made when I was invited to speak to the United Nations Security Council about four weeks ago. I was invited as a kind of witness to the 15 governments that are on the council, and I gave them a piece of my mind, which is that they are responsible for ending these wars. That's actually their mandate under the United Nations rules, and they're not doing their job. Of course, they're bickering with each other. They're, the United States is busy vetoing what all the rest of the world wants, and we're not getting anywhere. 
Let me begin with the Ukraine situation, because I think since October 7th, a lot of the Western media has shifted its focus away from Ukraine and towards the Middle East. But that doesn't make the situation in Eastern Europe any less significant or any less tragic. Uh, For starters, uh, one of the things that I've had a very tough time getting a proper, uh, you know, accounting of is what the casualty numbers are. Do we have any idea of what the casualties uh, are on either? the Ukrainian side or the Russian side as a result of this conflict? Numbers are flying around, but uh, a a recent number on the Ukrainian dead and wounded is about 400,000. And that uh, is probably on the low side, but it shows the magnitude of the catastrophic loss that's underway. And of that uh, 400,000 again, which I would say is a minimum, the way that it's counted. There have been probably uh, up to 200,000 dead and seriously wounded. That is uh, not lightly wounded, but seriously wounded and disabled uh, during the months of the so-called counteroffensive, which started this June and basically, uh, you know, has stopped uh, as of about a month ago. But this was a catastrophic year for Ukraine, predictably so, according to the kind of uh, experts that I follow about the battlefield, according to Western media, it was a big surprise how bad it was. But if you were following closely, it was not a surprise at all. Russia is uh, trouncing Ukraine. And um, not surprisingly, it's a much, much bigger country, a very sophisticated country, a very sophisticated military, very different from what we're told all the time about the bumbling failures and Russia's about to collapse. That's been spin, unfortunately, on uh, the U.S. side and almost everything that our government has done has been based not on real calculation or understanding, but on wishful thinking. The result of all of this is that rather than having negotiated a peace arrangement, which was possible many times in recent years, the United States uh, kept telling the Ukrainians, go out and fight. Uh, We got your back Uh, and uh, they have been slaughtered. I mean, to me, that's just an, a, a horrible, horrible situation and the very definition of a tragedy. Now, when you say all of this was foreseeable, meaning the casualty numbers, the nature of how the conflict has gone between Russia and Ukraine, the uh, United States assistance to Ukraine prolonging rather than helping bring an end to this conflict, given the prism of hindsight, and again, based on your view and others, it sounds like, you know, hindsight wasn't needed. It sounded like you have the foresight for this back two years ago. What should the response to the United States have been once Russia made the decision to invade Ukraine? What is not really ever explained uh, by our government to the American people is that The United States started a kind of gambit, uh, a strategic play in 2008 to expand uh, our military bases into Ukraine. 
And the Russians said, no, don't do that. And the United States said, oh, come on, we're peace loving. Don't worry about it. And the Russians said, really, don't do that. Do not come closer. Stay away. Ukraine should be neutral. And the United States said, nah, come on, they can do what they want, as if we would just not care if, uh, say, China started setting up military bases uh, on uh, the Rio Grande uh, border with the United States and Mexico. In other words, we absolutely don't want to even try to think of things through the eyes of the other guy. But the Russians kept saying, don't do that. And then in 2014, when Ukraine had a president that was very uh, delicately uh, and with some agility, actually balancing between the U.S. pressures and the Russian pressures by saying that Ukraine should be neutral. Thank you very much. We're kind of in the middle of you two big guys. The United States uh, conspired to overthrow this guy. You'll Recall our uh, then Assistant Secretary of State out on the Maidan, which is the big square in Kiev, uh, handing out cookies. In the meantime, our intelligence services and so forth were doing more than handing out cookies. We were actively engaged in the overthrow of a neutral government, which, by the way, unfortunately, is how American foreign policy works normally. That's not even exceptional foreign policy. That is what the CIA and others do for a living. They overthrow other governments. And you shouldn't do it next door to Russia. That's the main point. The Russians see everything, know everything. They actually intercepted one of the planning calls of uh, Victoria Nuland with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine at the time, Jeffrey Piat, who also is now a senior official in the State Department, and they were conspiring online about who's going to be in which positions. And the Russians intercepted it. They posted it online. We got all to hear this. And then it happened just the way that this phone call uh, uh, said it would. The U.S. pick for prime minister became the new prime minister after the overthrow of the president. The American people aren't told any of this right. background so this war started actually nine years ago in 2014. You wouldn't know it uh, by any of the reporting, because according to the official narrative, it started February 24th, uh, 2022, which is just not true, actually. Uh, it started nine years ago, and there was a lot of fighting, a lot of deaths, but it kept escalating. And the Russians kept saying uh, we need to stop this. We need to negotiate together. And the United States kept saying, it's none of your business. Uh, we're going to expand NATO uh, and you have no say in it. The Russians tried on December 15th, 2021, a last attempt to negotiate. Uh, I was following it very closely. I called the White House. I said, it's really a good idea to negotiate, avoid this war. Who the hell needs another war on this planet? And um, the White House uh, counterpart that I spoke with, very senior, said, no, uh, nothing to negotiate. And war started uh, immediately after, I shouldn't say the war started, I should say Russia's escalation on February 20, 
fourth, 2022 uh, occurred because the war really had been going on for years with with a lot of deaths and a lot of violence. But it escalated with uh, Russia moving in about 40,000 troops. And immediately the Ukrainians uh, said, "Okay, okay, 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 we'll negotiate neutrality with you. And uh, the Turks very helpfully, the next door neighbors to both of them uh, in the Black Sea said, we'll mediate. And so a a negotiation process started in Ankara, the capital of uh, Turkey. Uh, and I flew to Ankara because I was really curious. I spoke with the mediators at length and uh, learned the details. And at some point, as this was nearing a, a real agreement, the United States stepped in and said, we don't accept you, Ukraine, accepting neutrality. Uh, you have to keep fighting, and we've got your back, and we've got all sorts of weapons for you. We're going to send HIMARS for you. We're going to give you all sorts of armaments. Uh, just keep fighting. And uh, our Secretary of Defense, so-called, it's a misnomer, it's our Secretary of War, uh, Lloyd Austin, publicly said our goal, our aim is to weaken Russia not to secure Ukraine, but to weaken Russia. We wanted the Ukrainians to keep fighting. Now, I follow the events hour by hour, day by day, and the military experts knew that Ukraine was outgunned, outclassed, uh, uh, manpower, uh, huge disadvantage. And while Ukraine could make some tactical victories in a war of attrition, this was going to be a disaster. And our more intelligent parts of our government, like the Rand Corporation, which is an analytical, uh, not a political unit, said, you know, a long war is definitely to our disadvantage. But we're led by politicians, not by uh, professionals. Uh, And these politicians are really incompetent, actually. And they just kept sending Ukraine to the battlefront. And now the situation is awful. Uh, The Ukrainians are being beaten back all along the contact line uh, in many, many uh, parts of the contact line. Every day, new losses. Every day, hundreds of Ukrainians dead. Uh, Ukraine has run out of trained Soldiers, so they're rounding up people violently, uh, basically off the streets, young people, giving them a couple of weeks training, and they're sent to the front line to die. And uh, we're encouraging more of that because all this is, at this point, quite embarrassing to Biden. And he's got an election campaign coming up, and the last thing in the world he wants is for the truth to start to come out. And so they're encouraging the Ukrainians, keep fighting. We're going to get you something. We're going to get you more weapons. We're going to get you the money. And every professional knows this is a disaster and a bloodbath. And what's really needed is actual, real discussion between the United States and Russia, especially over real security issues. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. put military bases of the United States inside Ukraine. Russia's got to go home. The United States has to stop pushing this NATO enlargement. 
And it isn't hindsight. This has been the issue since 2008 when the United States under George W. Bush Jr., but with incredibly, by the way, his NATO ambassador was Victoria Nuland, who's the one that passed out cookies in 2014 and is now the undersecretary of state under Biden. She's just there. No, No, it's incredible. It is. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Democrat, Republican, every administration except Trump manages to find a key policy place for Victoria Nuland. Um, If people are just right. Yeah. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. His, uh, he's the author of many books, including A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism. I want to uh, touch on the Middle East situation, but just to sum up the Ukraine war, I think Americans, whether they're left wing, right wing or non-political, they tend to see themselves as the good guys. And I think you've explained why the narrative that a lot of Americans bought into two years ago, that we're just helping a country that was invaded by a hostile neighbor, I think you've explained why that's a a flawed way of looking at this. I think you've also explained why whatever quote-unquote assistance that we've given to the Ukrainians really hasn't helped them. It's actually hurt them. I think it's also very telling the um, quote from Secretary Lloyd Austin that this is primarily about weakening Russia right now. Now, let's say that is the uh, foreign policy goal du jour. And again, initially we were told we were doing this to liberate the Ukrainians. Now we're being told this is being done to liberate, excuse me, to weaken Russia. And even Bill Kristol in the ads that his group is putting out there, they're saying that this is the goal of all this Ukrainian aid. If that is a rationale that people are for, is it working and has it worked? Is Russia at all weakened by the United States intervention in this Ukraine conflict? Russia is considerably stronger today than it was uh, before this conflict because the military has been upgraded considerably. And one can actually watch in real time uh, the technology generational improvement. By that, I mean the turnover, for example, of the drones, uh, of uh, the smart weaponry, of their range, of their sophistication, of their mass production, of the electronic warfare. Russia is substantially stronger today than it was two years ago. And uh, Ukraine has run through Uh, several armies by now, hundreds and hundreds of thousands lost, whatever the precise number is. Uh, The population has uh, declined well over 10 million because of all the people that have fled the country. And by some counts, uh, 20 million. It's, again, large uncertainties. But Russia has not been weakened Uh, The United States has drawn down its inventories. That's one of the real facts which the U.S. government acknowledged is we ran out of 155 millimeter shells. We ran out of shells to give to Ukraine. So everything is wrong with it. By the way, it's even crazier than saying uh, that it's to weaken Russia. There are real grownups in the government and in the Congress that really believe this is all to show our strength vis-a-vis China. It's 
nuts, I have to say, this whole concept that this is anything about proving our metal vis-a-vis China. China's looking on and watching, first of all, Russia be victorious, improve the, the technologies, the sanctions absolutely boomerang, the United States increasingly isolated diplomatically, the U.S. arsenals and inventories uh, basically drawn down, not to mention now what's happening in the Middle East. <laughs> if this is to be tough to China, my God, we better get a new team. This is so ridiculous. It bears no sense at all. It's also disgustingly cynical because you shouldn't really use another country in that way and have it destroyed uh, so that we can prove how tough we are. For me, it harks back to my childhood. We used to have the domino theory. That's why we were going to bomb Vietnam to smithereens and next door, Cambodia and Laos. That's how I spent my childhood listening to uh, such ridiculous, pernicious theories that you do something in one country so you look tough in another country. And that's actually what grown-ups say in Washington. Our senators, uh, Blumenthal in Connecticut, uh, shocking stuff, actually. Yeah, Mitt Romney, shocking stuff. They're, they're, not even, they're not even coy about it. They're just saying this is great money. It's weakening Russia, showing how tough we are to China, and we're not losing a life in the United States. This is the kind of rhetoric that they've used. Right. It's, it's all terribly, terribly wrong. You know, Professor Sachs, I'd love to do a full hour, maybe even two hours with you one day uh, in discussing foreign policy. Unfortunately, I I realize it's late and uh, neither of us have the time to do that today. But I can't let the opportunity to speak with you go by without asking you about the situation in the Middle East. Uh, The U.N. is now reporting that more than 570,000 people in Gaza are now starving due to fallout from the war. Uh, We've seen tens of thousands of Palestinians killed um, the large number of them civilians, uh, people that are very supportive of the Israeli handling of this. They'll say that's terrible. It's tragic. But the tragedy is all born because of the actions of Hamas. They're responsible for these people starving and for all the civilian casualties. I know you've been quite critical of Israel's handling of this war since October 7th. Once October 7th occurred and once we saw uh, these Hamas uh, terrorists kill all these Israelis, including Israeli civilians, capture others and kidnap them, what should the response from Israel have been? What would have been the proper way, in your view, to handle it after October 7th? The Arab states uh, immediately met. In fact, there was an Arab Islamic summit in Riyadh. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> where uh, all the neighboring states and Iran, by the way, together said, uh, we will secure Israel and Palestine and uh, work to make sure that there is safety and peace. Uh, but there has to be uh, a follow up to 56 years of a promise of a Palestinian state. This is a position I completely subscribe to. 
You can't look at this as starting in October 7, because on October 6, uh, Gaza was at a boil. And years and years leading up to October 7, all independent observers knew that the situation was explosive. The United States, again, was uh, faking it. Uh, In fact, faking it or (laughs) so incompetent, and it's hard to tell the difference uh, sometimes. But uh, Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, actually said uh, two weeks before October 7 that the Middle East is quieter than it has been in 20 years, and the crisis in Gaza is basically resolved. Now, such absurdity shows either a detachment from reality or an inability to look at basic facts or an unwillingness to look at basic facts. The point I'm making is that, like all conflicts, this has a political root. The political root is that Israel and Palestine need both to uh, have security and to live side by side. That was the judgment of the international community in the immediate aftermath of the 1967 war in Resolution 242 of the UN Security Council. It was followed uh, after 1973 by uh, UN Security Council Resolution 338, and since then by dozens of Security Council and General Assembly resolutions saying the two nations need to live side by side in peace on the 1967 borders. And since 2002, the Arab League, that is the countries in the Arab region, have said very explicitly that uh, they want peace and normalization with Israel based on the international law, based on two states. Now, the Israelis have rejected that. Netanyahu, who has been in power basically since 2009 with the short breaks, is dead set against it. And this is not uh, a surmise. That's the party platform of Mm -hmm. Likud. And the platform of not only Netanyahu, but even more extreme positions of the rest of his cabinet is that there should be one country, greater Israel, extending from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. And for a number of the members of the cabinet, that's because in their view, God gave them uh, the land uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, in the Bible, uh, and um, that's just the way it's going to be. Now, we will never have peace on that basis. Uh, And uh, the finance minister, Smotrich, who calls himself a fascist, by the way, it's not putting words in his mouth. He he jokes about it. Uh, Smotrich, uh, the interior minister, Ben Gavir, the uh, defense minister, Gallant, the prime minister, Netanyahu, are dead set against any politics. So they say the only thing we can do is uh, destroy Hamas, which basically is tantamount to mass ethnic cleansing. uh, And according to some legal specialists, such as uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights here in New York, tantamount to genocide, uh, both the intent and action. 
The United States is uh, every day providing the bombs for this. Uh, 20,000 people minimum have been killed because that's the body count, not all the people under the rubble. 70% of those killed are women and children. It's a massacre. It is an outright out-and-out massacre. It is massive war crimes, and it's all done to avoid any negotiation and any talk of politics. It's done in the name of so-called greater Israel, and that is an ideology. That is a religious view for these religious nationalists, which is a category of uh, Judaism uh, in Israel of extreme right-wing nationalists. It's not a category of the religion per se, but of a group that happens to have a lot of the cabinet in uh, the current government. So the fact of the matter is we are abetting a view that is absolutely a literal dead end and a metaphorical dead end to any kind of peace other than slaughter. The United States knows it. American politicians are trained never to say anything bad about Israel. What Israel's doing is massive war crimes. It is despicable. And it's in the vision of something that is impossible in terms of any kind of peace in that region. It's deadly. It's against international law. The Americans know it. And uh, of course, Biden is just really a pathetic, I mean, he's pathetic, actually, and he's pathetically weak president. uh, And his team is pathetically weak. They don't know what to do, except they keep giving the bombs every day. That's, that's it. I'll end with this, sir. Um, A lot of people that are supportive of Israel, they also view Israel very much as the good guys in uh, in all of these conflicts, the victim uh, based on what happened on October 7th. And uh, when they wage war, people tell the story of Israel waging war very ethically, uh, not only providing warnings, not only leafleting, not only using dummy bombs, but actually when they need to uh, do something like invade or take over a hospital, they'll bring incubators for the people in that hospital, which is something that the defenders of Israel will point out is not something that's typically done by hostile armies. Um, Two-part question, and I realize we're we're way long, so I'll make this my, my final question here. One... Why? It, what is Israel doing that's exactly a war crime? And what is the fallacy in the notion that Israel is waging an ethical war? And then lastly, if you could tie this into that answer, is Israel safer today than they were on October 6th? Yeah. And, and you know, I'd, I'd like to say just if people don't know me and they may think I'm an Israel hater or something, I've I've been going to Israel for more than 50 years. I have family in Israel. I am not an Israel hater. Uh, I am so sad and upset by this. I can't even tell you. This is a tragedy and it is a self-destruction of Israel. This is not bringing any security at all to Israel. This is absolutely 
threatening Israel fundamentally because the entire world is standing against Israel because Israel is slaughtering innocent people every day. And the only backer that Israel has is the United States. And in the United States, much of the public is aghast at what we're doing, as I am, absolutely aghast. Uh, And uh, young people are completely shocked by this. So Israel is losing even its last defender because it's doing the undefensible. Uh, It is just killing people in extraordinary numbers, innocent people. Let me say, without uh, getting into uh, all of the specifics, in my opinion, Israel's doing nothing to protect civilians. It is using dumb bombs. It is deliberately blowing up apartment buildings. It is blowing up hospitals. It is blowing up schools. Uh, It has weaponized food. And there are hundreds of thousands of people that are profoundly, profoundly hungry and uh, I don't know if starving is right, but that's a term that is being used by U.N. officials right now. I do not accept that Israel is taking any precautions. Israel is using mass force to ethnically cleanse this region. That was their plan. The plan was we're going to scare everybody so that they flee to the south and force Egypt to accept these people. That is the plan. And the plan didn't work because Egypt said no. And the United States buckled on it also because the United States didn't want to be so visibly a party to ethnic cleansing. But I haven't heard one credible military expert from outside Israel. And I don't find the IDF spokespeople credible at all, but any independent outside expert say anything other than what Israel is doing is destroying a civilian population. And it's before our eyes. Even American officials like Lloyd Austin mumble this. Of course, this is the terrible fact of American politics. There's no truth in anything our government officials say about anything anymore. They just don't even have the idea of telling the truth as a (laughs) basic standard of daily life. So it's not specific to this. They lie about every single thing that is in front of them because everything is spin now. Professor Sachs. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, to no, go unfo- on, but, no, no, but it's OK. I wish I wish we had more time and I do yeah, hope you'll come back say, and we can continue. There's not to- a shred of evidence that they're taking care. They've killed 20,000 people and the vast majority of them are women and children. So where's the care there? There is. Um, I do hope we can chat again in the future. We've been talking with Jeffrey Sachs of uh, Columbia University, the director of the Center for Sustainable Development, also uh, the author of A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Have a nice Christmas and a great uh, holiday season. You too. If you want to comment Thanks. on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. about what Christmas means to him. You know, my grandfather was an Italian immigrant, and he and I were very close. Um, he, Italy, Italian was his first language, really Neapolitan. And um, he never taught my mom, never taught my uncle how to speak Italian because there was an understanding back then that if you came to America, you wanted your kids to be American. And they're, you know, they, they can get by in terms of knowing some words here, some words there. My mother's a little better than my, uh, my uncle, but they don't, they're not fluent by a long stretch. And I, I'm not fluent in Italian. I studied it in school, know a few words here or there, didn't really know it. I've always wanted my son to know, and I think my wife agrees with me, to know a second language. I think it's a great thing, whatever the language is, whether it's Spanish, whether it's Mandarin, whether it's Russian. I would love it to be Italian because obviously we are of Italian derivation and he has a very Italian name. Uh, his name's Carmine Morano, but he is the most Irish looking Carmine Morano in the world. So I think it would be great if he actually n- knew a bit of Italian. So the other day, yesterday, he wanted to watch one of his shows, Coco Melon or something. And I said, no, I'll let you watch television. But I will, I'm going to put on a children's video that teaches Italian. So I found this on on the YouTube. The colors. I colori. And there's pretty pictures. Red. Rosso. Yellow. Giallo. Blue. Blue. Ah! <laughs> There's a cool Red. cat there. Which he Rosso. So we, we ended up watching it, and I think he was into it. I think he was into it. Uh, I'm going to, whenever he wants to watch television, I'm going to keep trying to show him these Italian language videos. I wonder if these work. Can you actually teach a child a foreign language this way? Has it worked for anybody? All right. um, Those of you that are on hold, we'll get to your calls in a moment. In the meantime, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 